Welcome to Goodwill Hunters. Here, we'll explore the ultimate question, how to use profits for purpose. It's been said business must help solve the global challenges we face. In this podcast, we explore how. How can the private and not-for-profits work better together? What truly constitutes aid and progress? And how can we transform international development? Here, we talk with the thought leaders, the game changers, the intellectuals, and the campaigners. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn, and this is Goodwill Hunters. Hello, and welcome to episode 29 of Goodwill Hunters. Today on the show, we have Rosemary Addis. Rosemary is a global leader and strategist in social innovation and investment. As Executive Director of Impact Strategist, she works with business, governments, foundations and strategists globally to find solutions to complex social issues and develop new value creation opportunities. Rosemary established and chairs Impact Investing Australia and the Australian Advisory Board on Impact Investing. In 2015, she was recognised for her contributions to innovation as one of the AFR and Westpac's 100 Women of Influence. In addition, Rosemary represents Australia on the Global Social Impact Investment Steering Group, previously the G8 Social Impact Investment Task Force, and is a member of the OECD Expert Group on Impact Investment. Rosemary holds a law degree with first class honours and is an internationally accredited broker of cross-sector partnerships and an experienced director. In addition, Rosemary is published widely on social innovation and impact investment. Rosemary, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Hey, welcome, Rachel. Delighted to be here. Okay, so I'm aware that in that bio, we've used a lot of language which will be familiar to those of us that know impact investment, but probably not so familiar to those who don't. So I think a nice way to start, could you explain to us what impact strategist does? Of course. Impact strategist is a firm I established probably over 15 years ago now when we were first having conversations about how we could find solutions to complex problems in um, the work that we could do across and between sectors, recognising that no one has all of the answers to some of the issues that are really hard to tackle. So what we do today is work with global leaders to shape the um, future directions for their for their strategy. We uh, are really um, passionate about uh, changing the way that leaders think about things and informing ambitious change agendas and helping them to achieve breakthroughs in how they understand and tackle um, and tackle problems. And we try to take a really practical approach as well as being far-sighted and aspirational, so that we can ensure that that there are opportunities that can be realised immediately and also setting things up for longer-term success. So sometimes that looks like um, being on a board or chairing an advisory committee in order to help them think about the problems differently or bring the impact and purpose perspective to the table. Sometimes it looks like um, taking a, um, a really difficult issue like road safety that affects millions of people around the world and saying, what would this look like if we took an innovation and investment lens to see if we could get a different angle on solving the problems? Sometimes it looks like working with like-minded leaders at places like the OECD or the United Nations to um, say, how can we be setting and shaping the um, frameworks and standards for how we integrate 
purpose in uh, more of what we do um, in the corporate and finance world into the future. Wow, that's a great explanation. And I want to get into some of the points you've made there a little bit more, but I'm interested in the moment that you realised you wanted to start Impact Strategist. Was it sort of a light bulb moment or was it something, was it the culmination of a few years of ideas or how did it happen? I would have to say that it was something you could never have planned for. Uh, so um, I was actually uh, an uh, equity partner at one of Australia's big law firms practising in intellectual property and I had probably the, the bespoke practice here of how we think about innovation and intangibles in mergers and acquisitions and private equity transactions and as well as a litigation practice. And I had the privilege of doing a lot of things in terms of management of the firm as well and got very curious about how we do things and how we solve problems and then built up a pro bono practice um, where I saw there was a real need for that in solving social problems. And um, in, uh, in the end, I decided that the best way to fully explore that uh, was to leave my practice and that was a huge decision because you know you work really hard and for a long time to become a partner at these mm. at these firms and it was also a very confronting decision um, and when I left I had kind of jumped off this big brand um, and so I started a company that then had a had a different name and found that the real appetite for doing things differently and engaging in new models and um, how we could bring together governments and private sector and public and um, and the community in solving problems was actually happening between sectors and so I read everything I could get my hands on um, and including the, all the things Jed Emerson had written on blended value and um, work that Michael Porter was doing at the time and 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 others and uh, launched a business back in 2002 for what we'd now call Shared Value Consulting. Um, and that was the start of the journey, which then over the course of the next 10 or 12 years actually took me into opportunities in community sector, in government. I became the first social innovation strategist in the federal government. I led productivity reforms and um, national reforms for the Victorian government. Um, and... Um, that opened up other uh, opportunities to um, engage globally and that's been a fantastic journey. So um, Impact Strategist has evolved through that journey and through me sometimes stepping out of my own company to take some of these other roles up. Yeah, wow. Now you just said something amazing. You said you were the first social innovation strategist in the federal government. Was that correct? That's right. What did 20... that role entail? <laughs> so... That role, um, as is often the case with innovation, was um, really something that started with uh, a visionary leader who's worked a lot in public sector, seeing an opportunity to bring my skills and experience into the Commonwealth Government and giving me some concrete things to deliver uh, and saying, we'll call you social innovation, um, we've not had something like this before, but be constructively, you know, disruptive and um, and uh, see how much we can get done. And so, in in short, that role involved uh, three key things. One was incubating quite transformational approaches to how we deal with some 
um, some difficult issues. So we incubated, for example, a, a revolutionary approach to how we can work in and with communities that experience the greatest disadvantage, not in one program in one part of the community, but working with and through the whole community over a 25-year period, so over a whole generation to create change. Um, we uh, also worked on public sector innovation. How can we work with people within the public service to think innovatively and creatively and expand their toolbox? And we worked on impact investment as one of those tools and to demonstrate that we can do some things quite differently. So we um, established the Social Enterprise Development and Investment Funds, for example, in 2010 and 11, and that involved for the first time in Australia taking grant money in a social policy area and using it to cornerstone new investment funds that made investment available to enterprises doing social good and creating impact in their communities in a way that hadn't been available before and enabling them to grow and to do more and to deliver more for the people that they work with in the community. Yeah. Now, I'm trying to understand the link between uh, innovative social projects and impact investment. And what I'm understanding from what you've just said is that uh, very innovative projects are not uh, traditional sources of investment because they may not be as safer investments as others. And therefore, we want to attract impact investment in order for them to get the funding that they need? Is that right or have I just oversimplified that terribly? <laughs> so the thing with impact investment is, uh, and the same with social innovation, is there are lots of things that manifest in lots of ways and we try and bring them into one umbrella for it to make sense. And so um, what um, I think two ways that are helpful to think about impact investing, one is where we're trying to solve social issues, we've we've developed models over time that work on the basis primarily of funders, be it government or philanthropy, um, funding organisations that are delivering services into the community and sometimes the organisations having a revenue model through their service delivery. Um, but it's often really programmatic. And so you get money for a certain thing for a certain period of time. Same in the development world, very focused on the delivery on the ground, which is important. But often it prevents those organisations from being able to plan for the skills that they need, for the strategies they need to be employed, uh, to employ to be successful and to create a real impact. Rather, they are going where the money is to deliver a program that somebody's said we want delivered. Uh, imagine a world where organisations who are doing great work in the community could actually say, this is the team we need and this is what we think we can deliver with and for this community and we'll be rewarded on the basis of the social value that we create. At the moment, there's a lot of opportunity that's not realised, a lot of successful programs that don't happen because the resources don't flow to them in a way that they can grow. So one of the roles of impact investing is to think about how we can bring um, different and more resources into the um, delivery sector and in the process um, help to create innovative models and, um, and to enable organisations to be set up for success. The other key way that impact investment works is when we're thinking about it from the investor side, saying 
if at the moment we have a system that overemphasizes the financial aspects to the exclusion often of social and environmental considerations. What if we were asking in relation to every investment, not only what's the risk and what's the return, but what's the impact? And then acknowledging that those impacts might be positive or negative, we were trying to drive more investment to the things that are positive. Um, and that looks like wanting things to, first of all, be avoiding causing any harm and potentially benefiting stakeholders or even contributing to new solutions. So we want to drive more investment from the, when you think about how the money flows into things that avoid harm, benefit stakeholders and contribute solutions. We call that the ABC of impact. Right. Um, so the link between the two is that there is a relationship between the way that capital flows, which is one of our main ways of resourcing any of the activities in our society, and what you're able to, to do because of the people you can employ and, the, um, and your capacity to operate freely to deliver your service on the ground, and, the, and also between the way that capital flows and whether we're promoting and enabling things that cause more harm or good in the world. Yeah. That is a really nice segue into uh, investor attitudes and changing investor attitudes because I think you've, you've touched on it there. Uh, EY's uh, investor survey that's released every year was released uh, about four or five months ago, I think it was, and it demonstrated a significant jump in the percentage of investors that considered environmental and social risk factors in their investment decisions. And it was a really significant jump even from the year before. I think it was an increase of between 20 and 30 percentage points. So a really significant jump. And, and that's over the same time period of the Royal Commission and other events that happened globally. So what do you think is driving that change in investor attitudes? And why, why is there suddenly a greater consideration of environmental and social factors? Hmm. So I, I think with all of these um, types of changes, there's never any one thing. It's more the cumulative build-up of lots of things that are happening. And uh, I, there's also has been a build. So we've had people interested in responsible investment, social investment, environmental, social and governance screening for a long time now. Uh, and... What we've seen now, though, is that it's got to a kind of critical mass or what you might call in the Malcolm Gladwell language tipping point where it's reached enough of the market that it's influencing broader behaviours. That is partly being driven by the building up of practice and people seeing that you can do this and that it's not, um, you know, there's not a necessary trade-off between investing for things that are better for society and uh, being responsible financially and making a financial return. It's also being driven by people understanding and seeing writ large the, um, the risks that can come from not taking some of the social and environmental factors into account. So if we think of the, there's a number of risks that are increasingly being acknowledged can have an effect on investment performance, even in pure financial terms. Climate change, we saw last week, the governor of the Reserve Bank make a speech where you've now got the Reserve Bank and APRA saying they expect companies and investors to be able to speak to 
the effects of climate change on their portfolios and investment performance. We have um, the uh, issues like food security and water that can have a big impact on the performance of investments down the track. Even as we saw in the financial crisis, the kind of health and governance of the, of the financial system itself can have a dramatic effect on the performance of people's investments into their retirement and things. So that's challenged this notion that the social and environmental factors are completely separate from considerations about how investments are going to perform financially. And that's also a big factor. And then, of course, you've got the um, the issues around, um, around trust in institutions. And there are some, you know, it's not universal yet, but in the corporate and finance sector, we're hearing the message of you need to be more connected to the things people care about in the world um, and adding momentum we've seen some big institutional investors globally find the framework then of the sustainable development goals um, of the united nations really helpful to to start to frame up how they might think about the risks and opportunities and um and so that's also added momentum because once you've got big pension funds saying we want to we want to invest in things that help promote the sustainable development goals then others up and down the value chain want to be able to meet that demand in the market yeah so if you're having a conversation with an investor who wants to have more oversight of the environmental and social risk factors in their portfolio where would you direct them to start so whether it's an investor or um, somebody who's coming at this from the impact side, um, I would suggest that one place they start is looking at the terrific resources available in the on the Impact Management Project website. Um, our colleagues there have worked with over now 2,000 practitioners worldwide and have a collaboration that involves everyone from the OECD to the um, International Finance Corporation, the UN Principles for Responsible Investment and others. And they've pulled together a lot of material about how you can think about impact and also where, what you can do and how if you're an investor with different kinds of uh, of constraints and aspirations about the type of investments that you make. Um, so that means that they've adapted the thinking for institutional investors as well as for people who are more in the private equity or direct investment markets. So for people who are investors, I think that's a fantastic resource that's been pulled together and it now has things like work on model investments by UBS, for example, but it also has terrific work on how we can think about impact led by groups like Nesta and some of the evaluation community. So um, that's certainly a resource. I think the first, you know, a really fundamental thing that people can do is just starting to put impact on the agenda. I say to people, once you start to put impact on the agenda and you start to, to talk about it, it's like when you buy a red car. As soon as you buy a red car, you start to see many more red cars out there on the road <laughs> so <true>. around you. <laughs> And you also start to say, well, I like that colour of red, but I'm not so keen on that colour red. And so that's something that really um, starts to um, frame a different conversation. And even if there's some pushback among colleagues, you know, initially, I've never ceased to see it come into the conversation and not 
create change over time. It's one of those things that then, you know, it's bubbling away in the back of people's minds and they start to think about it. And if they're thinking about some things where they want to have a positive impact, then they start thinking about, well, what impact are some of the other things they're doing, having? Um, so just starting to bring impact into the conversation is a great place to start. Yeah, it definitely is. Now, you made a point earlier uh, regarding the advent of shared value and blended value and um, in the past 12 months we've seen the emergence of long-term value following the embankment project for inclusive capitalism Um, Mm -hmm. so that's a lot of different values Uh, so how let's start with blended value what does blended value mean so I might start by saying these are all if we think of impact and the ways that any of us in our day jobs can act to help create a more positive impact on the world. It's like a prism. So you might be looking, you know, you might either as an individual um, or as a company even be taking different roles in any given day. You know, if I go to the supermarket to buy a product, I'm making decisions. If I am uh, at work advocating for people to invest in particular ways, uh, making decisions and giving advice. Um, And if uh, I'm investing my own money, um, I'm making different decisions again. So for any one of us, we might be looking through different parts of that prism, even in different parts of our life. And you also um, um, are looking at impact through different prisms with some of these models. I'm not a proponent of the view that says, you know, there's one model and that's, and you know, and um, and you have to pick the right model. I actually think we need lots of these things to flourish, um, and that it's it's about how we can all move further. So pick the ones that work for you. So blended value um, is really talking about how we can drive towards thinking about value not just from a financial basis but from a social and environmental basis as well. The work that Emerson did close on 30 years ago now um, also helped to break down some of the thinking around silos and said it's not so much about where you sit in the world, whether you're a corporate or an investor or a philanthropist or a community organisation. It's about the issues we all need to tackle if we're going to move this forward. Where's the capital going to come from? How do we measure impact, et cetera? So he really broke through some of that to focus us in on what are the things that, that are going to matter if we need to actually move some of this thinking forward and translate that into action. Yeah, that's um, a great explanation. Yeah, so that's blended value. So shared value, how does that relate? So shared value is a very similar concept. Right. Um, it's the expression, if you like, of of that same kind of thinking um, that came out of some work that Michael Porter and Mark Kramer did to really synthesise what was going on. What's been important about that is it's given the kind of um, stamp of authorization from an economist of the standing of Michael Porter um, and from Harvard saying it's not an optional thing to think about social and environmental. These things that we've treated as externalities actually need to be included if we're going to have a robust future for markets. And I heard Michael Porter speak about this at the Skoll World Forum in 2012 where he said when we left the social and environmental out of competition theory and out of things like GDP, it was a huge mistake. Um, And we need to correct 
for that now because the future of markets really depends on us reintegrating the social and environmental and the financial. Yeah, that's actually such a nice summary of, of how we have so many of the environmental problems we have and it's it's because historically we've treated the environment as an externality uh, when in, in reality it's always been internal. Yeah, and, and then that's also bled into a number of other areas and this is dangerous ground because I'm not an economist but you know <laughs> it's also taken us into areas of over-reliance on on redistribution, for example, rather than saying if we can unlock some of the the value from the social and environmental, if we can open up new models and new um, markets by serving communities who aren't currently being served well with what's on offer, then actually that's a that's a way to grow the pie. And so when you think about it in you know kind of policy wonk slash economic terms, that means that that shared value and impact investment is a productivity issue. Yeah, and I think that's a really good segue into the distinction between not-for-profits and the private sector. Um, So as I said to you before we started recording, a major driver for me starting this podcast was uh, that I was really keen to explore how the private sector can play a more meaningful role in international development. Um, I was also and remain a, a huge believer that in order to achieve the sustainable development goals, And in order to make material progress uh, on human development globally, the private sector must take the lead on that. And the not-for-profit sector simply doesn't have the resources um, to do that. So uh, viewing the private sector as an engine for change. On that basis, how how do we distinguish between the role of not-for-profits and the private sector with regard to impact investment? So the way I think about that is is um, has, I guess, two dimensions. First of all, through a social innovation lens, I think we need to be much more focused on impact and purpose of any organisation and less focused on the form that the organisation takes. So we need to see corporate forms, whether they be not-for-profit, for-profit, um, as one of the tools that we have and we need to say which tools fit for purpose for delivering what we're trying to deliver. Um, and once you do that, some of the sector-type silos fall away and it's much more a question of what is it we're actually trying to achieve and what are we trying to achieve within our own organisation and what are we trying to achieve collectively with others. The other thing is I think there's there's always going to be the um, service you know, service delivery and, in fact, some of the private sector and not-for-profit who deliver services, you know, particularly if you're thinking in the development context, have a lot more in common with one another than they might um, with organisations that are working in a very different context. So, you know, an an Oxfam or World Vision and a, a Palladium or others who are working in a development context may well have more in common with one another than they have with a um, Sacred Heart mission working on homelessness here in St you know here in St Kilda or the local um, small business that um, is is working down the road so um, so I think that um, that we need to think about those distinctions at the same time one of the reasons I spend so much time on impact investment is because I think some of the differences and the reasons that the non-profits don't have the resources is because of the way the capital flows into these different organisations at the moment. Um, and um, 
but at the same time, I think non-profits can actually benefit not only from uh, some of the lessons from the private sector, but also from uh, the, you know, some of the um, thinking that um, typically happens more, not exclusively, but typically happens more in private sector of people thinking, what are the real strengths of this organisation? Um, so, for example, I haven't come across many aid organisations who really see themselves first and foremost as companies that have organisations that have expertise in logistics. And yet when you think about what they do, delivering disaster relief or, you know, going into environments without a lot of infrastructure, often that is a real strength of, of theirs. So I think that there's a, a role for them um, to either work together um, or to be taking some of that private sector learning into how we think about the models for delivery in the non-profit sector. Um, and um, that same, the same goes for how people think about some of the service delivery aspects and there's a different kind of mindset um, sometimes. So I'm not sure if that answers your question, Rachel. It does. No, it answers it really well. And, and I'm cognizant that a lot of our listeners are either working for a not-for-profit um, or working in the impact investment space. And we've had a number of not-for-profit CEOs on the show. And the common thread that I found with them is, of course, all of them want their financial resources to be more sustainable. They, they'd like the, the flow of funding into their organisation to be more consistent so that they can create more consistency in their service delivery, uh, yeah. which is not surprising. So for not-for-profits in that position, what advice do you give them? So the, the bad news is there's no free money um, in, uh, in impact investing. Um, however, judicious use of... of um, different investment tools can be helpful. I also think we need to come together in the conversation with government and philanthropy about how they can fund differently to enable greater impact. Um, and with governments, some of that is about more focus on commissioning for outcomes. So let community sector organisations and non-profits back themselves and then reward them for the outcomes that they create. And we've seen some of the start of that with instruments like social impact bonds, but that's only one way to do impact investing. It's also only one way to do outcomes-based contracting. Um, and so while there's some complexities that, are, that um, you know, we don't have time to go into today, I think really encouraging governments in appropriate cases to move away from some of the programmatic responses uh, to actually enabling organisations to deliver closer to the ground is one way um, and I think the role non-profits can, can play in that is to take a leadership role and I'd encourage people to look at the terrific work that's been done by groups like the Australian Centre for Social Innovation and the Community Sector Industry Alliance out of Queensland who have really been trying to um, enable the community sector to take back the agenda and to be leaders um, and they came together to do a terrific report last year that is um, about community sector leadership for outcomes-based commissioning. So that's certainly one big area where I think uh, they could can take the, um, you know, can try to take the agenda and be on the front foot in, in saying to governments, this is a conversation we need to have, it's overdue. Yeah, you've mentioned a lot of great resources there, so we'll include links to those in our show notes. Um, 
I'm interested, from your perspective, is there an appetite from government to increase outcomes-based commissioning because they have the evidence to, to, to prove that it's effective or is that appetite still lacking? I think it's growing. Um, I think there's still work to do to raise awareness among all of the relevant stakeholders about what outcomes-based commissioning really is and how it can work. I think everyone's still pretty hung up on the measurement piece and some of that gets focused on the um, questions around data and, and what data may or may not be exist in existence at the moment. And I think, you know, we can all benefit from focusing on some cut-through measures around that, like maybe there's some areas where we just need to take some baseline, you know, agree what the right measure should be, take some baseline data and work from there. And, um, uh, but I think that, you know, it's a very real issue around the measurement, but it's not insurmountable. And the more that we try and do it, the better we'll get at it in the same way as we've got better at measuring other things, the more that we've done it and, um, and seen what works. Um, I think that um, we're seeing the interest come through in a few different areas of um, of government now. Um, what we haven't seen is a, you know, a significant commitment. It's still coming through in a programmatic way, so building that conversation. But I think there is a shift. Um, we're seeing it come through some of the commissioning units like in the New South Wales government, um, and I think we can all benefit from continuing to push the message about why it's important and being prepared to sit down across sectors and say this is how we would do it and these are areas where we could start. Mm. Yeah, yep. Now the final area I wanted to discuss with you is your involvement in various global steering groups on impact investment. Um, so other episodes that we've had that have focused on impact investment, the sense that I get is Australia is a slow adopter of of things generally um, we've been a slow adopter of the sustainable development goals and um, yeah tend to not be at the forefront of global trends but that could be a wild oversimplification um, so in your view where does Australia sit in the sort of global impact investment movement uh, are we a leader or are we more of a follower so I think I think the answer is both um, I think there are areas where we've led and the work that's been done in Australia has been really well regarded. Things like the Good Start transaction that was led by Social Ventures Australia originally, you know, that's still one of the leading um, uh, private equity impact deals at scale that created a really large and significant social enterprise in Australia. We had the New South Wales government be second in the world to announce they were going to do a social impact bond and they're still one of the few governments in the world that have a whole-of-government strategy and a dedicated office driving that work. And the thought leadership that we've done from Australia is really well regarded internationally as well and Australia was invited to be one of the first members of the G8 task force. In fact, we were the only country outside of what became the G7 that was at the at the table for that task force based on the work that had been done here in things like the social enterprise development and investment funds and some of the thought leadership that had followed on from that. And we've been able to position Australia as a leader in terms of that thinking about how do you develop the markets, what's needed, 
and the work we've done to adapt the international thinking and practice. So what the UK has done, what's been done across Europe, the US and other countries, and say what could that mean for what um, would take the Australian market forward is really well regarded. Where we've been slower is in getting the engagement from key stakeholders to take some of those things forward. So we've had some good positive steps, for example, um, a program to support social enterprises or impact-driven businesses trying to raise capital um, was initially funded by National Australia Bank. That gave us the proof of concept. We've been able to translate that now into policy and the Department of Social Services federally has funded the next round of that uh, of that grant funding and we're seeing terrific impact-driven enterprises show that they can raise capital and they're growing and the intermediaries that are working with them now have a, a way that they can get paid through this program. So that's been a big win and it's brought um, private sector and public sector action together. Other things like the game changer that we think Australia needs and that would really change things up a gear right across the board, which is a wholesale institution um, not dissimilar from big society capital but tailored to the Australian context and we've called it Impact Capital Australia. We've done work over a number of years now um, to model and adapt the best work in the world for the Australian context. We've got something that's implementation ready. We've actually got a couple of banks who um, have been prepared to step forward and say we'll be at the table. Um, we're slower to, to see government um, and uh, some of the others who could uh, help make that happen come to the table. So there are some things like that that we know could change the game for Australia um, and uh, it, it's not a lot of action that's needed to take Australia from where we are now to being among the leaders in the world, but um, we do need people to step up for some of those targeted strategic actions. That's a perfect uh, link to the final question in this interview. Um, it's the question that I finish all of our interviews with. And I think you've sort of just answered it there, but what does success look like in 10 years for you? So I would love to see Australia playing a really dynamic role in this market globally. You know, the reality is we're geographically a bit removed and we're a smaller economy in the world. So if we want to play a meaningful role we need to be able to um, to show the value and and um, to engage with the global markets on this. I think Australia has a unique opportunity with the depth of our institutional capital and the you know sense of you know, the people on the street for a fair go um, to play a really unique role. And of course, we sit on the edge of the Asia Pacific region where. There are so, is so much opportunity in terms of um, both the need for services and infrastructure, um, but also real need in terms of, of us meeting the sustainable development goals. So my vision for 10 years is that we see Australia really rise to that challenge, that in the next couple of years we do some things like the wholesaler, that we get the design of the Pacific Infrastructure Facility um, right in terms of the impact something like that can have in the region, um, that there's the right signals from government that encourage others to get on board and they step up to that and that Australia is really seen to be a place that is um, investing and where you can do good and do well and that that's seeing the rest of the world want to play and say how can, you know, how can we contribute to that kind of impact. 
That's a really exciting vision. I'm, I'm excited to watch it unfold. Thank you so much for being on the show, Rosemary. This has been so fascinating. Your insights are brilliant as always, and I'm very grateful to be able to chat with you. Thanks, Rachel. And as a final word, I would say that another um, place that people can look is the Australian Advisory Board, which is our um, body that links Australia to the leadership of this global movement, um, released a blueprint at the end of last year for collective action. And in there, it doesn't matter whether you're a philanthropist or an academic or an individual or a corporate or an institutional investor, there is something that says this is how you can contribute and here's some examples of what others are doing around the world. Fantastic. We'll include a link to that in the show notes as well. Thanks, Rosemary. Thanks, Rachel. Thanks, Rachel.